Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday, no, Thursday. <laughs> Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. It is the second day of the nine days. We're one week away from Tisha B'Av. A week from this morning, we will actually be in the midst of the uh, Tisha B'Av fast for 5783. Um... I hope things are going well so far. Those who uh, do not eat meat during the nine days, I hope last night was not too great of a challenge for you. And uh, that's the custom. I mean, there there are different customs depending on what part of the world you're from and what part of the community you're from. But essentially, the nine days, no meat, no wine, uh, no haircuts. Well, actually, three weeks with no haircuts. Uh, but I guess the meat and wine would be the um, the centerpiece of the nine days customs. So here we are, a week away from Tisha B'Av, and we've turned our JMN broadcast into a spoken word format for these nine days. Um, you might hear an acapella selection, you know, here or there, just to um, uh, bridge a few minutes that might be... Uh, that might be left in a specific hour or a specific show. But uh, essentially, it's a spoken word format here at JM in the AM. Um, with uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine serving as the, uh, the main part of that spoken word format, his brilliant lectures. Uh, yesterday, we had a couple of great lectures, the Six-Day War, uh, Shimon HaTzadik, um, and I know there was a slight problem with the with checking out of the um, Rabbi Wine website yesterday. Apparently, we got a note overnight that apparently that has been rectified. Um, I'm just seeing here if I could find the exact message that was sent to me. Yeah, here it is. We hope that the issue with the site is mostly resolved. You can direct people there to buy, and hopefully there will be no problem. If there is a problem, uh, there is a way for us to see who attempted to purchase. We can contact them to assist. Thanks, and sorry for the confusion and hassle. Um, Yeah. Anyway, so that's the story. Right now, if you go to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com, you should be able to check out with the purchases that you make um, of the different lectures and series. Again, if that was a problem yesterday, um, apologies from the Destiny Foundation and from us here at JM and the AM. And uh, the other method, of course, is to be in touch directly with them via telephone, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Either way, if you go to rubbywine.com, you can view the entire catalog of what's available um, 
in terms of his lectures and special series, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. So there's a series that Rabbi Wine has, which I don't think, if we've done anything from this series in the past, then it, then it, then it was only one lecture. But I don't think um, the other four lectures in this series we've ever explored, and I figured we'd do it this morning because it is pretty fascinating, and this series played to critical acclaim. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of a difference of opinion, halachic disputes in Jewish history. Again, difference of opinion, halachic disputes in Jewish history. And we will start with the Rambam and the Rivid. The Rambam and the Rivid, two very well-known contemporaries um, from, you know, almost a thousand years ago, who were... uh, who had, had who had many halachic disputes on a regular basis? Let's put it that way. <laughs> I mean, you will find you'll literally find the Rivid's commentary on the actual um, Rambam uh, print edition. <clears throat> Excuse me, print edition. So obviously, there was a tremendous mutual respect, um, but still, uh, they are the protagonists in a in a well-known halachic dispute in Jewish history. So uh, there you go. We'll get this started with Rai Beryl Wine and the Rambam and the Rivid. And I welcome you to a Thursday morning spoken word format edition of JM in the AM. This series deals with uh, different attitudes and viewpoints uh, towards halachic decisions. It will not be a matter... I'm doing my best. It will not be a uh, a matter of discussing individual halachas as much as it will be regarding attitudes, values, and the personalities that affected uh, these uh, decisions. And we have uh, five, uh, I've chosen five uh, different pairs of Great Poskim, and tonight's lecture uh, uh, concerns the Rambam and uh, the Rivid. The Rambam is Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, born in 1165, and he died in 1235. And the uh, Rivid, who... Uh, was older than the Rambam, but died before the Rambam was, well, the Rambam was still alive. Now, the Rambam lives in Egypt. The Rambam is from Spain. He moved from Spain. He fled from Spain when it was taken over by the Muslim extremists, by the Almohads. And these names change, but uh, it's the same thing throughout all the ages. And the Almohads... uh, forced the Jews either to convert or leave. And uh, the Rambam's father, Rabbeinu Maimon, together with the Rambam and his brother, David, fled, and they lived in North Africa, in North Africa in Fez. There again, the Rambam is pursued by the Almohads, and so he has to flee again. He comes to the land of Israel, in the land of Israel, he's threatened by 
the crusaders who kidnapped rabbis and held them for ransom, and then oftentimes killed them and held their bodies then for ransom. Again, we see how very little changes in the world. And uh, then he comes to Egypt where he settles, and it is in Egypt in uh, Fostad, which is old Cairo, uh, that he writes his great work, the Mishnah Torah. The Ravid, Rabbeinu Avraham ben David, we have three people who have the same name. Rabbeinu Avraham ben David, so there's Ravid 1, Ravid 2, and Ravid 3. He is Ravid 3. And to differentiate him from the others, he's called the Ravid Baal HaSogos, the Ravid who uh, wrote uh, commentaries, criticism, uh, regarding uh, the works of others. The Ravid is a uh, critic par excellence, and he also is someone that gives his own opinions and uh, is one of the great parshonim, uh, the great commentators uh, to the Talmud and to the works of others. Two different personalities completely. Uh, the Ravid is a very, very wealthy man. He lives in post squares in Provence, uh, where he practically supports the entire town, but the entire town has barely 50 Jewish families. The Rambam uh, is the head of the Jewish community in Cairo, and therefore he has uh, a greater range, so to speak, of issues to deal with. He ends up being the doctor to the sultan. Uh, he uh, always is dealing with the different groups in Cairo, and we'll see that in a minute. That shapes an attitude uh, towards uh, the halachic decisions. And I mentioned the Rambam is a Sephardi. He comes from Spain. There's a generalization, uh, most generalizations, even if not 100% true, have some validity. And the generalization of the Svardim, the Svardic commentators to the Talmud and to coming to a decision is that they looked at the forest and not at the trees. They looked at the general picture. Uh, they tried to make sense of the general picture. And if certain trees didn't fit in, so they didn't fit in. The Ashkenazim, on the other hand, the Balitosvas and the wise men of Provence, of which the Ravid was one of them, they are more interested in the trees than in the forest. Tosvas does not give us general viewpoints. It concentrates on words, on contradictions, on uh, the nitty-gritty of the Talmudic give and take. And therefore, there's a different attitude to begin with. The Rambam is looking for order. He's looking for a uh, an all-encompassing work that will put everything into shape. The Ravid is not interested in that. 
That's not his viewpoint of the matter. He says everybody has to study the Talmud, study the Talmud word for word, and I will comment on the individual words and sentences and ideas that appear in the Talmud. There's another point. The Ravid is what... He's a person, a, a Kabbalistic person. He's a great Mekubal. His son, who was sightless, Rabbeinu Yitzchok Saginoar, is one of the greatest of the Mekubalim. And uh, because of that, uh, it's also a different viewpoint. Now, the Rambam is not a Kabbalist at all. The Rambam is... Uh, so rational that uh, sometimes it borders on the irrational. The example that I always use is uh, the Rambam uh, says uh, one of his basic precepts is that nature never changes. From the moment of creation till our time, all the laws of nature are the same. The world did not change with the great flood the Rambam is almost alone in saying that because almost all of the other Meforshim say that the world before Noah was a different world than the world after Noah. The Rambam does not uh, agree with that. So the Rambam is faced with the problem there are 38 people that are listed in the Torah who lived very, very long lives. 800 years, 969 years, 600 years. We don't see people like that, even with all of our advanced medicine. Even with Kupat Cholim, we don't see people like that. So uh, how do we account for that? But the Rambam says a rational answer that becomes irrational. He says these people took care of themselves. You know, they had a proper diet. They slept eight hours a day. They took care of themselves. So, uh, to a great extent, that can't be the answer, but the Rambam would rather have that answer than to say that the laws of nature changed, or that there is another sphere that works in the world that we're not aware of. The Rambam is not into any of that. Another point that has to be made the Rambam is interested, not only interested, the Rambam says that the study of philosophy is necessary in order to be an intelligent, observant Jew. Now, philosophy was a general term that meant to include uh, science, mathematics, medicine to a certain extent. It's not just the philosophy of Aristotle. The other world didn't agree with that. The world of the Ashkenazim was purely Torah. They were not, they, I don't even know if they were aware. And in Provence, uh, the great fight against the works of the Rambam that ended up that his books were burned, it was simply by the people who said, uh, you know, well, he's talking philosophy, he's talking all of these things. What does that got to do with Judaism? It has no place. The Rambam, in his magisterial work, the Mishnah Torah, has 
a section called Hilchot Deot, which is basically philosophy, science, according to the science that existed then, uh, medicine, The arrived uh, in one of his chuvas says, I don't know why he put that in. What is that doing in a book of halacha? What does that have to do with Torah? And uh, the great uh, Ramah, Reb Meir Abu Lafia, who was the, the leader of the charge against the Rambam, the Yad Ramah uh, in Provence, so he said, instead of calling it Mishnah Torah, he should have called it Mishaneh Torah. Instead of calling it a repetition of the Torah, he should have called it that he's changing the Torah. But to the Rambam, uh, this is all part of it. And it has not only has to be addressed to him, it's part of halacha, it's part of the, uh, uh, of the structure of behavior of the Jewish people. Uh, the, Rambam, the Rambam in his uh, fashion wrote, and he said, I know that there will be many people who oppose this book. And I know there will be many people who will be jealous of this book. He said, so we have to wait uh, 50, 60 years, he says, till the present generation passes away. Then the book will be able to be judged objectively. But it cannot be judged now because, he said, of the personal interests that people will have. So the general rule that most people accepted was that any place in the Mishnah Torah where the Raivad did not comment, which is like 95% of the Mishnah Torah, that he made no comment, that means that he accepted what the Rambam said. He was not in disagreement. And this was uh, generally uh, held to be correct. I remember from my years in the yeshiva, that's the way uh, the Rambam, our teachers taught us, that if the Raivet doesn't object, then he agrees as well. But there was a Jew here in Yerushalayim, of Yosef Kapach, Zechot Tzadik Lebrocha, a Yemenite Jew, who was a great, great Talmud Chacham. And he wrote a uh, book of the uh, response of the chuvas of the Ravad. And he points out many, many places in the Ravad's chuvas that he disagrees with the Rambam, even though in the Mishnah Torah he made no comment about it. So therefore that axiom uh, became questionable as to whether or not uh, every place where he doesn't comment means that he agrees. Now, the Rambam also explains mitzvahs. Because the Rambam is based on, on rationality, an understanding. So there has to be a reason for the mitzvah. He did this in the Mori Nebuchim, but he does it in the Mishnah Torah as well. The Ravid's opinion is that there are no explanations. It's all, he says in a number of places, the mishpotim are chukim and the chukim are mishpotim. Even the ones we think we understand, we don't understand. We do it because God told us to do it. 
And uh, so to speak, it's almost a waste of our energies, a waste of our intellect to try and explain, because we're never going to figure out why God does things. So if he says to put on film, we put on film. The Rambam wants to know why we put on film. So he says it's a symbol, the arms, the, the head, etc. The Ravid has no room for that. doesn't agree with that. I'll give you an example, strong example. What is Shabbos? Why do we, why are we commanded to rest on the Shabbos? So there are many, many reasons advanced. God created the world and you rested on the seventh day. Now this is one of the problems that the Ravid has with the Rambam is that the Rambam many times seemingly ignores what the Pulsic says or ignores what the Talmud says and advances another reason that doesn't appear. Now, the Rambam had sources, and we don't know all of his sources. One of the great detective uh, stories in Jewish scholarship over the ages is, where did the Rambam get this? Now, the Rambam did not uh, leave us any footnotes or bibliography, and therefore there have been many, many numerous great scholarly works only to discern where the Rambam took this from. There still are many, many places where we have no idea. But here, the Shabbat is simple. It says, Kivayom Ashvi, Shovas Vayinofash. Kaviyochul, God rested on the seventh day. We imitate God, so we rest on the seventh day. The Rambam's definition of God does not allow for rest. Does not allow for any of the ideas he says all of the anthropomorphic statements that exist in the Bible, God's hand, God's anger, God's this, God's that, are only lesaberis ozen. They're only to, so that we have some idea of what he's talking about, but it should never be taken literally. It's pure allegory. The writer disagrees. The Ravid says you can't, because there's a great danger about allegory, right? Allegory, you know, the, there was once a Hasidic Rebbe that once said that uh, it says by Yaakov Avinu that he prayed to God, right? God will give me clothing to wear, and he'll give me bread to eat. Why did he have to say uh, clothing to wear? Or why did he have to say clothing to wear or bread to eat? You know, he should have said, give me clothing or bread. He said because he knew that there would come someone that said it's an allegory. And clothing is not clothing and bread is not bread. So meanwhile, he'd freeze to death and he would be, uh, he'd be hungry always. So the question of allegory always uh, is a problem. The famous question of allegory between the Rambam and the Ravid, but it's an illustration of all other things. The, the Rambam lives in a community that a majority of the Jews are Karaites, are Karoyim. The Rambam over his 30 year span in Cairo will change that. 
he will defeat the Karoyim. He'll make most of them rabbinic Jews. But certainly it's a struggle. And even at the end, the Karoyim are very, very powerful in Egypt and very powerful in the Rambam's community. The Karoyim took the Bible literally. And therefore, the Rambam is very keen to deliteralize parts of the Bible, to make it not literal. Because if we take everything literally, then we end up being a Karaite. And therefore, we find that's one of his motivations for allegory. So the, the famous dispute between the Rambam and the Ravid at the end of the Mishnah Torah, so the Rambam describes the Messianic era. So the Rambam takes the Messianic era, he follows the opinion of Mar Shmuel in the Gemara, and he says, Ein bein olam Mashiach, bilvad. When the Messiah comes, the world will not change. It won't we don't expect any changes. The only thing that will happen is that, you know, uh, we won't worry about uh, Dennis Ross or Condoleezza Rice, who we don't worry about now anyway. That one, Yeshibut Malchus will be gone. But otherwise, everything will be the same. So the Rambam says... In one of his uh, things, in one of his lalochas, al yale aladas. One should not even think that the Messiah somehow will do miracles. And, or he will create new things that go on in the world. Oh, or he'll revive the dead. The Rambam here is swimming upstream because even today, uh, many Jews associate Triyas with the Mashiach. And according to the Rambam, it's two separate things, two separate times. One is not dependent on the other. And other things like that. It's not going to be that way. Not, not that way. Rabbi Akiva was the, the, one of the great Tanoim of the Mishnah. The Gemara tells us that everything, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yudah, Nosi and Rabbi Shimon, everything, Kula Aliba to Rabbi Akiva. It's all based upon Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva was the great supporter of Bar Kochva. The Rambam says. Rabbi Akiva said that Bar Kochva is the Melech HaMashiach. So he says Rabbi Akiva thought that way and the Rambam says... All the other Chachomim, all the other wise men of his generation, initially also thought, Shu HaMelech HaMoshiach, Ad Shenerag Bavodos. 
until he was killed. When he was killed, we don't have a dead Mashiach. Once he was dead, they knew that he wasn't the Mashiach. But now he says his point. We don't find that Rabbi Kiva said, you know, uh, stop the sun or uh, split the sea or do any miracles. Now, there's a hidden thing here as well. That's the Rambam's pshat. The hidden thing is against Christianity. The Rambam was a fierce opponent of Christianity. He held it to be close to paganism. He's talking about the Roman Catholicism of the Middle Ages and the Byzantine Christians. And... uh, that whole, the whole New Testament, all of that is built upon miracles. And that that's the proof it's the Messiah. So he says the miracles have nothing to do with the Messiah. The Messiah is not going to perform any miracles. We don't want him to perform any miracles. That's not his business. And therefore to ascribe miracles to somebody and say because of those miracles which he, by the way, says in other places are not really true. But in any event, to ascribe miracles doesn't make someone a Messiah. The Ravid disagrees. The Ravid says, V'alo bar kuziva hoya omer anohi malko de Mashiach. Bar Kochva said, I am the Messiah. And the Chachomim did send people to investigate him. If he is or he isn't. The Kivan, the Loovid, since he was unable to perform miracles, that's why he died. He died because of the fact that he was unable to perform miracles. Because the rivet holds that the real Melech HaMashiach will provide miracles. So this argument continues. The Rambam says, we have a famous posuk, the gore zavim keves, the wolf will lie down with the sheep, the lion with the lamb. Right? And a small child will be able to put his hand over the uh, den of a python. Lo yoreu v'lo yashchisu b'chol har kodshi. There will be no, uh, in other words, the animal kingdom will change. Nobody is going to do bad things. So that uh, the lion uh, was not going to be a beast of prey anymore. The wolf won't be a beast of prey. Everybody's going to be a vegetarian. Herbivorous. The Rambam says that's all an allegory. He said the lion and the lamb is going to be lamb chops. Just forget it. That's never going to change. He says, what does it mean? It means that the power of the moral influence of the Mashiach will be that great nations, which are the lion will not try and conquer smaller nations which are represented by the Lamb. 
So it's all allegory. And therefore, the Novi did not mean it literally, and we have to interpret it in this fashion. The Ravid says immediately, but it says a posik in the Torah, Vashivosi Chayoro Minoretz. I will see that there will be no wild animals in the land. So everybody asks on the Ravid, what kind of a question is that? The Rambam will say that's also an allegory. Just the way he said on all the other things that they're an allegory. So there's a great difference here. All the other psukim are from Nevi'im. They're not from the Torah itself. They're not from the Hamisha Chumshei Torah. So the Ravid apparently is conceding that in the words of Nevi'im and Ksuvim, it is possible to have allegory. But in the words of the Torah itself, it's impossible to have allegory. And therefore, Vashivosi which is written in the Torah in Vayikra at the end, so that has to be taken literally, and there's no room for allegory, and therefore he disagrees with the Rambam on that matter. The uh, Rambam, when he uh, wrote... The Rambam says, uh, you don't need any other book but mine. Famous statement. I'll read you from the, his introduction. He writes, because of the fact that nobody can find out what the correct halacha is. There are so many different opinions. There's no order. It's chaotic. So therefore, I have arisen. And I, and I have, uh, I do it by myself, but I have confidence that the rock of God will help me. And I am going to write in clarity, which the Rambam is. The Mishnah Torah is just magnificent in its clarity and in its language. And I will write you, I'll tell you what is pure and impure, what is kosher, what is not kosher, what is forbidden, what is not forbidden. In a clear language and concise. So that if you have my book, you have all of Torah Shabalpeh. All of the oral law is in my book. Below Kushia, there are no kashas back and forth. Below Piruk, without no, and no answers. Lo Zeomer Bechov, Zeomer Bechov, I will not bring you disputes. This one said mutter, this one said oser. Ella, the, the whole thing will be clear to everyone. And therefore he says, in his uh, famous statement, the tchila, <clears throat> a person should read the Torah itself. The acharkach, after the Torah, Kore Baze, he should read my book, the Mishnah Torah, 
That's why he called it Mishnah Torah. It's the second Torah. V'yivoda mimenu kol Torah shebal peh kulo ve'enu tzorich likro sefer acher b'neim. He needs no other book. He doesn't need the Mishnah. He doesn't need the Talmud. He doesn't need the Reef. He doesn't need anything. Wow. You only need two books in your library. Art scroll will be out of business. You need the Chumash, the Torah. You need the Chavdalet Sifrei Torah, the 24 books of the Torah. And you need the Mishnah Torah. He said, you don't need anything else. The written Torah is contained in the 24 books of the Torah. The oral Torah is contained in my book. And he said, it's all clear and it's all laid out. The Ravid, uh, as we can imagine, took issue with him. He says in this famous comment, Sovar letakein velotikein. He thought he's doing a good thing and he didn't. Ki hu ozav derech kola machabri masher hoyu lefono. He's a radical. He forsook the path of all of the great scholars who came before him. They had to bring proofs as to what they said. He doesn't bring any proofs. He just says it. Because And they quoted where they got it from. He has no quotes. He doesn't say where he learned any of this from. He says there's a great value in knowing where it comes from. Keep Many times the judge has to decide whether it's permitted or not. The rabbi has a shaila. And he'll think because he sees one opinion. And he won't be aware that there is another opinion. And maybe if he saw that there was another opinion, he would decide the matter differently. And he said the Rambam doesn't allow for that. The Rambam brings the one opinion that he holds to be correct as though there are no other opinions. And then he says it himself. Then he said, I want to see who said it. Maybe I am greater than the man who said it. And therefore I shall not, not have not bound by his opinion at all. Maybe he's greater than I am. Then I will be bound by it. But if I don't know who it is, what can I do? And then he brings up the point that there are minority opinions. So that's always in the Talmud and the Mishnah. They quote minority opinions. Why do they quote the minority opinion? Because eventually the minority opinion can become the majority opinion. Or eventually we'll have such a circumstance that will put together a few minority opinions, we'll bundle them together in order to have an opinion that we can rely on. You find this especially in uh, in very difficult cases like... Uh, to free a woman, uh, an aguna, 
So we're talking here about a real aguna, not what's called today an aguna. Today, uh, today, what the, the word aguna is misused because they use it for women whose husbands don't want to give them a divorce. That's a different matter. The aguna that appears in the Talmud and in the poskim is where the husband disappeared. And especially in Eastern Europe, was a common thing. The Jews went on the road, and uh, you know we don't know what happened to them. They're gone for three, four years. So it's a very difficult thing to be able to free the woman without having concrete evidence. But in many cases, there are minority opinions that we would not ordinarily follow, but we put together enough minority opinions that the rabbi will decide that somehow uh, we are able to uh, say that she is a widow. So the the Ravid says uh, the Rambam doesn't allow for any of that. There are no minority opinions in his book. It doesn't make any room for it. And then there's another hidden thing behind all of this, which exists till our day. And that is the fear that people will stop studying Talmud. When the Rambam said they won't study the Talmud. The Rambam said you don't have to study, the, you don't need any other book except the Chumash and me. So then what happens with the Dafayomi? And that was one of the major objections to the Rambam, was the fact that he, so to speak, short-circuited the study of Talmud. And we'll find that uh, that was an objection later when Rabbi Yosef Karo wrote the Shulchan Aruch. So also the objection was, the Marshal writes about it very strongly, but that no one's going to study the. It used to be you had to figure it out for yourself. You would start with the Talmud, and you'd figure out for yourself what the case was and what the answer should be and how to come to a conclusion. Now you just look it up in the Shulchan Aruch, whatever he says. He says, is that the way to study Torah? Is that the way to decide an issue? Nevertheless, the Shulchan Aruch took on a great uh, popularity in the Jewish world. And then there's, since then there have been other Shulchan Aruch. But every time a new one comes out, it's the same objection. It was the same objection when Shlomo Gansfried made the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. So then they said nobody will study the Shulchan Aruch. When the Shulchan Aruch came out, they said nobody is going to study the Talmud. The Rambam came out, they said no one's going to study the Talmud. So this is a continuing debate, and it's an undercurrent uh, between the Ravid and the Rambam all the time as to what the uh, <clears throat> the importance of going to the source. Between the period of the Talmud and the period of the Rambam, the Rambam is in the period of what we call Rishonim. So let us say from the year 500 to about the year 1000, or maybe even a little later, uh, there was a period that was called the period of the Gaonim. The Gaonim were the heads of the yeshivot in Babylonia, in Bovel. And we have works of theirs that they wrote. Their main works were to explain the Talmud. 
but we have works of decisions that they had to make, cases that came before them, all sorts of opinions. What is the place of the Gonim? Are we bound by them? The usual rule in Jewish life is that later generations cannot arbitrarily argue with previous generations. We have a concept called Yerida Tadorot, that generations become less, not more. And therefore, uh, we cannot easily uh, disagree. The Rambam is uh, 150 years after the end of the Gaonim. The Rambam practically ignores the Gaonim. And in many halachas, he uh, somehow uh, disputes them completely. I'll give you uh, what probably is the primary example. We have a, a rule that meat has to be washed before it can be salted and koshered. The Gaonim had a chumrah. They had instituted an opinion that it had to be the koshering process had to begin within 72 hours of the slaughtering of the animal. And that if the koshering process did not begin, in other words, it wasn't soaked in water, within that 72-hour period, then we can't soak and salt it, and it's not going to help. The only thing that can be done is to roast it over an open fire, etc. That's the Chumrah Sagaonim. Because of that, we have problems. Uh, the whole question about frozen meat. So for a long time here in Israel, they had what was called Basar Kafui. They slaughtered the meat in South America or in Yugoslavia. They immediately froze it. They didn't kosher it yet. They didn't soak and salt it. They froze it, and it was came to Israel. It may take a week or two weeks to come to Israel by boat. And then when it came to Israel, it was defrosted. And then it was soaked and salted. So the question was whether that period of time when it was frozen, does the 72 hours run in that period of time? If it does, then the meat is problematic. If it does not, if we say that frozen means that uh, it's in a rested state, it's like no time has passed whatsoever, so then you're uh, allowed to do it. This was a question for decades here in Israel. It no longer is a question, because all the meat that is imported here now is kosher made in the slaughterhouse before it's brought here and frozen. So we don't have the issue anymore, but it still remains that people don't like to buy what they call bosa kafui. Meat that was frozen. That's a humus agonim. The goni mentioned that. The Rambam doesn't mention it at all. And it's an important thing. He doesn't mention it at all. Later on, the tour mentions it. And so the Shulchan Aruch took it from the tour. But the Rambam didn't, uh, didn't mention it at all. The Rambam generally pays little attention to the goni. The Rambam works from the Talmud to him. 
I think that that's implicit in what he said. Like you don't need any other book. Right? Like he didn't need any other book either. The Rivet pays great attention to the Gonit. And he says that it is not possible to ignore them. And that uh, therefore their opinions not only count, but their opinions many times are what decides the issue. Now the Rambam has a tremendous uh, independent streak. He says, uh, for instance, in Hilcheshchita, he has one of his lines. He said, my father, Abba Mori Asard, Vanimin But I say it's Mutter. You won't find many times that he's going to, people would disagree with their father and write it. But the Rambam is not, uh, you know, he's not nervous from what, what happened before him. So therefore, for instance, there was a dispute, uh, about, uh, a man left money for the poor. When he died, so then the poor wanted the money. The Rambam says that they're not entitled to it because the, it was just a promise. They didn't have, they didn't have the money when he died, and therefore they're not entitled to it. He said it's nice to give zdoke mitzvah lakayim dvarav bitzdoke o behegdish kamoshu mitzvah lakayim aneder. It's nice to do it, but he said, but they're not, legally they're not entitled to it. The Ravid disagrees immediately. The Ravid says that if he had the money in his lifetime, and this basically is the Ravid following the Gaonim and the Rambam not. The Rambam is only, he doesn't even quote the Gaonim in this matter. And there are countless matters where the Rambam and the Gaonim are not on the same page. The Ravid says it very strongly. Call me Shecholek al-Psagoon, he says. Anyone that disagrees with the decision of one of the Gaonim, mitam shenirolo lefidato, because of his idea, right? His independent streak, he knows it better. Shalokedas agon, velokipirusho, so he says he has to be able to prove it. And he has to prove it from the Talmud. And he has no permission just to say, I don't agree. I don't think you can say that way. Now it's interesting, one of the most interesting things is that the Bali Tosfus agreed with the Rambam and not with the Ravid. The Bali Tosfus, they took the Gemara, and they disagree. For instance, uh, the, uh, the, the Balitosas disagree with their Rebbe, with Rashi, with their father and grandfather all the time. The Rosh quotes it. The Rosh says, you see, they're not afraid to disagree with Rashi, so why should we be afraid to disagree? And we find many times uh, Rabbeinu Hananel was a goan, Rabbeinu Gershom was a goan. Tosas disagrees with them. So Tosas took on the Rambam's attitude even though, in many respects, the Rambam and Tosis are two different worlds. But the Ravid is 
sincerely upset that someone should disagree with the uh, with the Gon, unless he said you can prove it. And you can't tell from the Rambam that he's going to prove it because the Rambam doesn't bring any proofs. He just says it. Now, for instance, the Rambam holds, we talked about allegory. The Talmud itself uses allegory. We have a din of uh, Ganov, a, a, a robber, the Abob Machteris. He digs a tunnel. You know, we're accustomed to Ganovim digging tunnels. He digs a tunnel to get into the man's house. So in the Torah it says, Vimzorach alov Hashemesh. If the sun shines upon him, then you're not allowed to kill him. But if the sun doesn't shine upon him, so then the owner of the house can kill the uh, robber because the robber is potentially a threat to the life of the owner. The Rambam says that's an allegory. It has nothing to do with whether the sun is shining or not shining. The Gemara says it. Zorach alav Hashemesh, if it's as clear to you as it is that the sun is shining or not shining as it is now, in other words, if you know that the man is not going to kill you, then you have no right to kill him. And therefore, uh, the Gemara says, for instance, if the father is the Ganev and the son is the one who's being robbed, so then the son has no right to kill the father because the presumption always is that the parent won't kill the child. He says vice versa, that's not true. A child will kill a parent. And therefore, if the father would be the owner of the house and the son would be the robber, then he could kill him. So the Rambam doesn't say a word. He takes the Gomorrah's allegory literally and says that's the halacha. The Raiva disagrees. I will, I cannot withhold myself from expressing my opinion on the matter. J.M. in the A.M. Ray Barrel Wine is uh, speaking about the Rambam and Rivid in a series uh, entitled A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. And we get an opportunity to hear the conclusion of this lecture after the top of the hour here at J.M. in the A.M. Welcome to a Thursday on this 20th day of July, day number two in the month of Menachem Av. The year is 5783, Tufshin Pei my name is Nahum Siegel, J.M. in the A.M., and it's spoken word format, which is our custom for the nine days. We'll do our news from Israel at the top of the hour. And then, um, and then we will uh, continue and conclude Rabbi Wine's lecture on the Rambam and the Rivet. And then we have other lectures for this morning that concentrate on halachic disputes in Jewish history. Very interesting, to say the least. Those of you out there who tried yesterday to order different uh, lectures and series from Rabbi Wine's website, they apologized. They had a slight problem, slight difficulty. Uh, it does seem like the uh, situation has been rectified. Uh, 
Uh, so you can go to uh, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com, rabbiwein.com, and order whatever you wish. Um, everything in his uh, collection comes highly recommended. Uh, you can also use the phone number if you want to order by phone, speak to the people in his office, and that's 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN for information. Uh, tomorrow, in addition to our weekly update, Malcolm Holmline, Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, will join us. In addition, uh, of course, Rabbi Yudin and Harry Rothenberg about the Torah portion. Uh, we'll also have uh, uh, some of Rabbi Wine's lectures. And in addition to that, uh, tomorrow is the anniversary on the 3rd of Av of the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and that is the, the tradition here at JM and the AM is that we play my father's eulogy that was delivered on the 3rd of Av in 1994 we play that eulogy tomorrow we'll probably do it i assume in the seven o'clock hour tomorrow morning here at jmm if you never heard it it's really not only an excellent speech but an amazing overview of the rebbe's uh, career and influence life and influence i should say it's america's one and only jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world the web at nachomsegel.com on the nachomsegel network and of course on the beloved nsn app Galitzal, the background to our news from Israel coming up, and plenty more here on a Thursday. Spoken word format, nine days here at JM in the AM. Yes, he's Weig insists, and I appreciate it. Insists on doing a live lunch today. He'll do that coming up at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Plus, we'll go through our schedule because we have a, a bunch of uh, regular programs that are going to be airing this morning. And through the day here at the Nahum Siegel Network, and we'll have all that for you coming up right here uh, during JMNAM. We'll analyze this morning's schedule. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday follows next. We say Bokir Tov from JMNAM. Galitzal, Hashash Time. Zoraim Tovim, Baul Panehud Graf, in Mashakorea Shav. היועץ המשפטי לממשלה לשעבר אביחי מנדלבליט תוקף בחריפות את החקיקה המשפטית. ביטול עילת הסבירות הוא ספין. קיימת אגדה כאילו רק ביטול עילת הסבירות זה לא כזה נורא. רק שיעצרו שם. ממש ברור לכל מי שנמצא שממש לא יעצרו שם, אלא הם ימשיכו הלאה. באופן הקיצוני שעליו מדובר בספין ומסווה שתכליתו היא ריסוק העצמאות של מערכת המשפט כולה. עוד אמר מנדלבליט בכנס חירום של לשכת עורכי הדין. הדבר היחידי שמונע את פיטורי היועמ"שית הוא עילת הסבירות. אחרת אפשר לקחת מידיה את הסמכויות ולמנות תובע כללי פוליטי כדי שיקבל החלטות בדבר מסוים אחד. כתבתנו לענייני משפט תמר שונמי מוסרת, בפתח הכנס התפתחה מהומה. שלוש אורחות דין הניפו שלטים, עליהם כתוב דיקטטורת בגץ, ואחת מהן אף הוצאה מהכנס על ידי שוטרים. נשיאת העליון בדימוס בייניש הגיבה, מי שמניף שלטים עם דיקטטורת בגץ, יש לו עוד הרבה מה ללמוד על דמוקרטיה. סערה סביב דבריו של ראש השב"כ לשעבר נדב ארגמן הבוקר בגלי צה"ל. ארגמן התייצב לצד מחאת הטייסים ואנשי המילואים ואמר לאילנה דיין, האחריות היא על ראש הממשלה. אם החקיקה תעבור, אנחנו לא חייבים לעמוד בחוזה שחתמו איתנו. 
שר המורשת עמיחי אליהו מעוצמה יהודית הגיב לדברים ביומן הצהריים בגלי צה"ל מהלך מסוכן וילדותי. אני חושב שהמהלך הזה של להוציא למדינה עין כי אתה עכשיו לא מסכים, זה דבר מסוכן, זה דבר ילדותי. אני לא מצליח להבין איך אנשים מבוגרים מתנהגים בצורה הזו. יש פה קבוצת אנשים שחושבים שמגיע להם יותר, שהם פריבילגיים, בעיניי הם פוגעים בדמוקרטיה. צה"ל מגנה סרטון שהופץ ברשת בין השאר על ידי השר מיקי זוהר ובו טייסי חיל האוויר מסרבים להעניק סיוע אווירי ללוחמי יבשה. מנסים לייצר שיסוי פנימי בצה"ל, ראוי לכל גינוי. מדווח כתבנו הצבאי דורון קדוש. הסרטון שהופץ ברשתות החברתיות מציג את טייסי חיל האוויר כשהם מסרבים להעניק סיוע אווירי לכוח יבשה שהותקף בין מפיציו גם השר מיקי זוהר מהליכוד שבסופו של דבר מחק אותו. בצה"ל הזדעזעו מהסרטון ודובר צה"ל תת-אלוף דניאל הגרי מסר תכליתו ליצור שיסוי פנימי בתוך צה"ל שראוי לכל גינוי הלכידות היא ערך עליון ואנו דוחים מכל וכול את האמירות נגד לוחמי צוות האוויר בסדיר ובמילואים. השר מיקי זוהר כתב בחשבון הטוויטר שלו בתגובה. נתקלתי בסרטון שביקש להעביר מסר מאחד. לצערי, גוף תקשורת החליט להוציא את הסרטון מהקשרו, והציג שהוא פוגע בחיל כזה או אחר. כמובן שזו לא הייתה המטרה, ולכן מחקתי. בשל מצוקה חמורה של מקומות כליאה בשב"ס, חשוד תושב מזרח ירושלים שוחרר בתנאים מגבילים על אף שבית המשפט האריך את מעצרו בשלושה ימים. כתבתנו בבירה נועה ברנס מוסרת כי הצעיר חשוד שהתחזה ברשתות החברתיות לרופאת נשים מומחית בשם דוקטור רנה עבדין, הונה נשים שביקשו להיכנס להיריון וגרם להן לשלוח לו תמונות וסרטונים אינטימיים ואף איים בהפצתם. תחזית מזג האוויר, הטמפרטורות ימשיכו להיות גבוהות מהרגיל לעונה, אך תול הקלה קטנה בעומס החום. אלה החדשות שעורכת נועה מיכאלי. J.M. in the A.M., Thursday morning broadcast, spoken word format for the nine days, and I thank you for joining us. My name is Nachum Siegel. So um, yesterday we had the, the first, well, actually I shouldn't say the first, that wouldn't be fair, but the first really formal meeting um, between the five people that are going to be uh, responsible for and uh, producing the, um, the radio show that I'm going to be doing from the plane with Nefesh Benefesh on the 15th of August. I go with Nefesh Benefesh to Israel, and as is the annual tradition, it has become the annual tradition, in what is one of the most exciting programs of the year, in my opinion, um, is that we get to speak to different olim. And we'll, we'll speak with people who are retirees, and we'll speak with people who are, you know, lone soldiers, and some people who have, you know, really interesting stories, and especially the ones that are outside of New York and New Jersey, because sometimes we're just, you know, <laughs> completely taken by, by those who live in the outlying areas who have such a strong connection to... Judaism in Israel. But anyway, um, so yesterday we're, we're having this meeting and we're going through the potential candidates of who's on the flight and who would be great interviewees. And we come across a couple. And I, I said to uh, the people on the call, I said, I think this couple is um, from the family of somebody that is 
so critical in the history of JM and the AM. And sure enough, uh, you know, they, they looked up certain names and maiden names, etc. And, sur- and sure enough, I was right. So on the flight on the 15th, one of the highlights, I mean, there'll be a lot of highlights. One of them will be that um, I get to speak to somebody from the next generation of someone who had this very, very behind the scenes, but very, very vital role at the beginning of Jewish programming on WFMU. So that's what I'll say until this point. And um, let's just say I'm extremely, extremely excited about it. And um, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Lots, lots of tributes and history in that conversation that I can guarantee you. So I'm really looking forward to that flight. Uh, so that's happening on the 15th of August, coming up next month. Also, uh, at the end of July, the literally the Sunday of Shabbos Nachamu, and Reb Judah Michelle mentioned this with me on the air um, just the other day, uh, the Camp Hask experience is going to be taking place at Sunday, July 30th, Shabbos Nachamu weekend, starting at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Hask experience day will go until 2 p.m., There'll be a live concert with Joey Newcomb, Baruch Levine, Reb Moshe Auslander, Mendy Warch. There'll be a carnival, uh, a real day of family fun. Uh, there'll also be a Time for Pillars exclusive event for those in the Pillar Society with Hask. And um, I'll be up there, and I'm very much looking forward to it. And on Monday, July 31st, you'll actually hear the show that I will be recording on Sunday at Camp Hask. So that'll be um, an extension of the Hask Experience Day weekend. That'll air on the 31st of July. I also want to remind everybody, as we mentioned yesterday with Rabbi Osman, who is the chief rabbi of the Ukraine, uh, he will be speaking this coming Sunday, the chief rabbi of the Ukraine, who can give a very important and comprehensive look at what's happening with the Jewish community of the Ukraine during this very difficult time. He'll be speaking Sunday, this coming Sunday, 10.15 in the morning at Congregation Keter Torah on Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, the bottom line is that um, the, the more money they have for the Mitzvah for Ukraine campaign, the more they could do for people in tremendous need. And I'm talking about basics, food, medical help, uh, pharmaceuticals. I mean, I'm talking about real basics that people need. And it, it's endless. That's the bottom line. It's endless. So if you want to participate or get more information, uh, you can go to officeofchiefrabbi.org. Again, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Ramosha right? Osman is the uh, Ukrainian chief rabbi, and again, he'll be in New Jersey this coming Sunday morning speaking in Teaneck. And there'll be a Q&A afterwards, etc., etc. You'll be able to ask whatever you wish regarding what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, all right. Thursday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM, and uh, we are now going to conclude the lecture from the series Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. This is Ari Barrowwine's lecture on the uh, Rambam and Rivid here at JM in the AM. Generally pays little attention to the Gaonim. 
the Rambam works from the Talmud to him. I think that that's implicit in what he said. Like you don't need any other book. Right? Like he didn't need any other book either. The Rivet pays great attention to the Gonin. And he says that it is not possible to ignore them. And that uh, therefore their opinions not only count, but their opinions many times are what decides the issue. Now the Rambam has a tremendous uh, independent streak. He says, uh, for instance, in Hilcheshchita, he has one of his lines, he said, my father, Abba Mori Asard, Vanimin But I say it's Mutter. You won't find many times that he's gonna, people will disagree with their father and write it. But the Rambam is not, uh, you know, he's not nervous from what, what happened before him. So therefore, for instance, there was a dispute, uh, about, uh, a man left money for the poor. When he died, so then the poor wanted the money. The Rambam says that they're not entitled to it because it was just a promise. They didn't have, they didn't have the money when he died and therefore they're not entitled to it. He said, it's nice to give tzedakah, mitzvah l'kayim dvarav b'tzedakah o'behegdish, k'moshu mitzvah l'kayim aneder. It's nice to do it, but he said, but they're not, legally they're not entitled to it. The Ravid disagrees immediately. The Ravid says that if he had the money in his lifetime, and this basically is the Ravid following the Gaonim and the Rambam not. The Rambam is only, doesn't even quote the Gonim in this matter. And there are countless matters where the Rambam and the Gonim are not on the same page. And the Ravid says it very strongly. Call me Shecholek Alpsagoon, he says. Anyone that disagrees with the decision of one of the Gonim, Mitam because of his idea, right? His independent streak, he knows it better. So he says he has to be able to prove it. And he has to prove it from the Talmud. And he has no permission just to say, I don't agree. I don't think you can say that way. Now, it's interesting. One of the most interesting things is that the Bali Tosfus agreed with the Rambam and not with the Ravid. The Bali Tosfus, they took the Gemara and they disagreed. For instance, uh, the, uh, the, the Bali Tosfus disagree with their Rebbe, with Rashi, with their father and grandfather all the time. The Rosh quotes it. The Rosh says, you see, they're not afraid to disagree with Rashi, so why should we be afraid to disagree? And we find many times uh, Rabbeinu Hananel was a goan, Rabbeinu Gershom was a goan. Tosfus disagrees with them. So Tosfus took on the Rambam's attitude, even though in many respects 
the Rambam and Tosas are two different worlds. But the Ravid is sincerely upset that someone should disagree with the uh, with the Gon. Unless he said you can prove it. And you can't tell from the Rambam that he's going to prove it because the Rambam doesn't bring any proofs. He just says it. Now, for instance, the Rambam holds, we talked about allegory. The Talmud itself uses allegory. We have a din of uh, Ganov, a, a, a robber, the Abob Machteris. He digs a tunnel. You know, we're accustomed to Ganovim digging tunnels. He digs a tunnel to get into the man's house. So in the Torah it says, Vimzorah Hashemesh. If the sun shines upon him, then you're not allowed to kill him. But if the sun doesn't shine upon him, so then the owner of the house can kill the uh, robber because the robber is potentially a threat to the life of the owner. The Rambam says that's an allegory. It has nothing to do with whether the sun is shining or not shining. The Gemara says it. Zorach halav Hashemesh, if it's as clear to you as it is that the sun is shining or not shining as it is now. In other words, if you know that the man is not going to kill you, then you have no right to kill him. And therefore, uh, the Gemara says, for instance, if the father is the Ganev and the son is the one who's being robbed, so then the son has no right to kill the father because the presumption always is that the parent won't kill the child. He says vice versa, that's not true. A child will kill a parent. And therefore, if the father would be the owner of the house and the son would be the robber, then he could kill him. So the Rambam doesn't say a word. He takes the Gomorrah's allegory literally and says that's the halacha. The Raiva disagrees. I will. I cannot withhold myself from expressing my opinion on the matter. The Ravid says, even though what he brings, the Rambam's halacha, is mentioned in the Gemara, the Chachomim did interpret it allegorically. They, they used it as an example, as an allegory. If it's clear to him, that he's not going to kill him, then you can't kill him. You cannot take the posik and not apply it literally. And therefore he says, it means in the daytime you can't kill him, at night you can kill him. He says, even though that may sound strange, he says, well... I would interpret it as follows. In the, if a Ghanif comes in the daytime, uh, he expects to be able to get away with it. 
He doesn't expect that he's going to fight. And if he sees he can't get away with it, he'll run away. But at night, when he knows that the owner is at home because there weren't lectures that evening, he knows the, the, the owner is at home. So then, if he comes to rob, that means he is prepared to kill. And therefore, that's why at night you can kill him. So the rivet again takes the posig literally. He says, yeah, a posig in the Torah, the rivet says, always has to be dealt with literally. And should never be dealt with allegorically. And the rivet is say, setting a red line here that even if the Gemara treated it as an allegory, they don't mean it. The Rambam who uses allegory all the time, uh, naturally, uh, so the Rambam doesn't, uh, doesn't interpret uh, night, day uh, as being uh, anything of, uh, of determination here in these inyanim. Uh, the last point I want to discuss with you is what's, what about customs? You know, customs are very important in Jewish life. And people many times use customs much more than they use the halacha. You know, I always say the famous quip of Rabbi Yaakov Emden that he said it's too bad that lo signov is not a minhug. He said if it would be a minhug not to steal, people wouldn't steal, right? But it's, it's not a minhug, it's written in the Torah. So people somehow get around that barrier. The Rambam categorizes different customs. Now, the Rambam is not a fan of customs. Again, because he's rational, and many of the customs are irrational. The Rambam, in his letters, explains that many of the customs are non-Jewish. They came to us from the outside society. They may have been adjusted by the Jews, but their, their source is not Jewish. And the Rambam... Uh, to a certain extent, has a very elitist attitude towards the masses. He said, you know, we can't really take into account what people who are not learned, people who are not scholars do or don't do, and expect that we should constitute the halacha because of their opinions. So the Rambam characterizes as follows. There's minog nevim, he says. There are customs that were established by the prophets. Those customs are holy. Our custom, for instance, of the arova, of uh, smiting the arova on Hoshina Rabbah is a minig nevim. It's not brought in Allah anywhere. It's not brought anywhere. But the, ta- the Talmud taught us that that was a custom that was instituted by the prophets of Israel. That the prophets of Israel institute a custom that we're bound by. He says the second level is minig chachomim. Scholars establish the custom. He, all right. So he said that depends if uh, it was accepted or not accepted. The mere fact that they made a custom, he said, if it's not rov Yisrael, if it's not the majority of the Jewish people that accept the custom, uh, then you know we don't have to get nervous about it. Then he said, There's a, there is a minute called Kol Yisrael, which we cannot say it's a minute Nevi'im, 
and we cannot say it's a minig of Chachomim, uh, but somehow it's a minig of Kol Yisrael eating cheesecake on Shavuos or whatever. The custom, all the Jews do it. So he said, if all the Jews do it, then it must be something. But he says, customs that the people have, that in one uh, society they have it and other Jews don't have it, we're not bound by those customs. Customs that are patently foolish, he says, or superstitious. And Ramam's a great enemy of superstition. That they're obviously, he said, those customs should be eradicated. The Rambam does not bring the minig of Kaporis, for instance. There's no Kaporis in the Rambam. And there are those later, even that we'll talk about, and we talk about the Orach HaShulchan, the Orach HaShulchan also said that if we can, any rabbi that can get rid of the minig of Kaporis, he'll defend them, he said, in this world and in the next says it's a barbarism. It's, it's taken from the outside world. And try and sell that, you know, in Gula, Erev Yom Kippur. But the Rambam says we're not bound by those customs. The Ravid doesn't agree. The Ravid says in his Chuvis and many other things, says Minig Yisrael has a Kedusha to it. And even though we may not, you know, Ivan agrees that there are minhogim betos, there are mistaken minhogim. But he said, unless there is clear proof that the minig was betos, that the minig was instituted by mistake, unless you have clear proof of that, in other words, if you're in doubt, you still have to keep the minig. And that minig is one of the basic elements of halacha. Now we have a, a Gemara in Beitzah that minig mevatel halacha. A minig can even cancel halacha. So uh, the Gemara limits it originally only to the halacha of the Rabbonon, but then there's opinion there that it even is regarding a matter of Torah. And the Rambam uh, limits that greatly, that the instances of minig mevat alalocha are uh, rare, whereas uh, the other poskim, following the Rivet and others, say that minig has a very strong base, and therefore it has to be uh, calculated in the decision as to what the halacha should be. And we, as I mentioned, we see that in the Jewish people today, uh, the minhogim are very, very strong. Even minhogim that are from one society, uh, that society attempts somehow to impose that minhogim on other societies because they feel that that's the correct Torah way. So here we've had examples of uh, the difference in viewpoint and in values philosophy and all sorts of things between the Rambam and the Ravid. And as is usual the case in Jewish law and Jewish life, they march hand in hand throughout Jewish history. There is almost no text of the Rambam that is published without having the Ravid's criticism on the side. 
just like there's almost no Talmud that doesn't have Tosfus on one side criticizing Rashi on the other side. And from that, uh, so to speak, difference of opinion, we are able to fathom the halacha, and we're able to delve deeply into being able to know uh, the Torah and to understand the great uh, flexibility that Torah Shabal Peh gives us in order to discern halacha for every time and every place. This concludes this lecture. J.M. in the A.M. with the Ribeiro Wine. That was a good one. Rambam and Rivid. The series is entitled uh, Halachic Disputes, Difference of Opinion, and uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, this one, and uh, thousands of others. 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and uh, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, RabbiWEIN.com. They had a slight problem with the website yesterday. Uh, that problem, they, they believe, has been rectified. So hopefully if you're ordering something from Rabbi Wine's website, you will have no problem doing so. If you do have a problem, remember you could be in touch with them directly by phone and to take care of the order that way. Again, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWEIN.com. J.M. and the A.M. Thursday morning, spoken word format here as uh, we continue through the nine days. It is the 20th of uh, July, day number two in the month of Menachem Av. Tomorrow we will have uh, our weekly update with Malcolm Honline, Harry Rothenberg and Rabbi Yudin on Parshas Dvarim, my father's, excuse me, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe which was delivered on the, at the Shloshim on the 3rd of Av back in 1994. We'll have that uh, for you tomorrow on the anniversary of that, uh, of that presentation. And um, we will continue to hopefully inspire everybody and educate people during the uh, period of the nine days with these interesting talks, these interesting lectures, and this unique spoken word format that, even in terms of our own network, is uh, exclusively on JM in the AM. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zebed of Alevi, and Zechonishmas Esther Basar of Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. The great Klosenberger Rebbe once said, When a Jew says, Ani Mamin Bemuno Shalema, when a Jew says, I believe with perfect faith, what is he saying? He's saying, Hashem, you can testify that if we didn't believe that Mashiach would come today, we would not find the koach to get up in the morning. The one thing that keeps us going is the hope that Hayom Hu Yavoy, that today he might come. As long as we are not meriting to see this, we are still misavel. We mourn on Tishabov on the two charbonos, on the two destructions that happen, and on the galus that still continues. As part of this morning, we remove the parochas from the Aaron Kodesh in Shul. Why? What did the parochas do wrong? What's the basis for this minag? The Talmud in Gittin relates that when Titus Harasha, 
The evil Titus came into the Hegel. He stabbed the Parochus with his sword. Miraculously, blood spurted forth. Seeing the blood, Titus believed that he had killed the Ribbon He killed Hashem. He therefore took the Parochus, formed it into a large basket, and placed within it all the Kalim of the Besamikdosh, which he put on a ship. According to the Gemara, Titus was subsequently punished in an unnatural manner. A gnat ate away through his nostrils until it got to his brain. When the parochus is taken down, the Sifre Torah behind it are revealed. As we know, there is a tremendous amount of trembling of Kedusha concerning a Sefer Torah. Just as one would tear Kriya if God forbid they were in mourning, so too one tears Kriya if they see a Sefer Torah that has been burnt. This is for any Yid, any Jew that passes on and someone else is present at the time of Yetzias Neshama, then those present have to tear Kriya. They have to tear their garment. What does this teach us? It teaches us that every Yid, it doesn't matter who they are, is like a Sefer Torah. The Baal Shem Tov once said, with the same love that a person kisses a Sefer Torah, that same love is how we should look at every Yid. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you Morning Chizik. Have a nice day. Thursday morning, JM in the AM, spoken word format, nine days format at JM in the AM. Good morning, everybody. Um, I mentioned earlier that Rabbi Osman, who we spoke with yesterday, is uh, the chief rabbi of the Ukraine, and he's going to be speaking this coming Sunday in Teaneck, New Jersey. I hope everybody will have an opportunity to go and meet him. Uh, after his speech, there'll be a Q&A where you could ask him anything you wish about the situation with the Jewish communities of the Ukraine. Uh, it's this coming Sunday, 1015, Congregation Keter Torah on Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. Information, officeofchiefrabbi.org, officeofchiefrabbi.org. And as we mentioned, uh, they are really in a situation where the more money they have, the more they can help people. Simple as that, with food, medicine, etc. Uh, so if you want to contribute, go to the website, officeofchiefrabbi.org, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Org. And as I mentioned, uh, a week from Sunday, we'll all be up at the Camp Hask Experience Day. And that'll be Monday morning's broadcast on the 31st of July, the Monday following Shabbos Nachamu. So we'll have that for you. Looking forward to visiting Hask and participating in their big Hask Experience Day on Sunday, July 30th. And I know there'll be a lot of members of this audience who are going to be joining in that day. Looking forward to greeting you. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app, for Android and iPhone and comment away. Full schedule, or I should say, you'd be surprised at how many programs we are going to be featuring today in our regular lineup here on NSN, including Yossi's Weig and a Thursday live lunch. That'll be coming up starting, obviously, three weeks format. That'll be coming up uh, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern time right here at uh, JM in the AM, uh, or I should say right here on the Nahum Siegel Network, and uh, we'll go through the rest of the schedule a little later on this morning here at JM in the AM. 
Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine, who for years has been the centerpiece, his lectures have been the centerpiece of our spoken word format here at JMNAM during the nine days. He has some amazing series uh, which you can explore at RabbiWine.com or by dialing 1-800-499-WEIN. Uh, this series, uh, A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. And we are going to start right now um, one of the classic uh, pairings of halachic disputation. That's uh, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. Here it is, Rabbi Beryl Wine, Thursday morning broadcast. You're listening to JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns... Uh a grandfather and a grandson, Rashi, Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki, and his grandson, Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Shmuel, I mean ben Meir, Rabbeinu Yaakov ben Meir, who is known as Rabbeinu Tam. He's known as Rabbeinu Tam because Yaakov ish Tam, Yoshev Oholim, and Rabbeinu Tam was the leading scholar, in fact, he was the leader of French Jewry uh, during his lifetime, during the time of the Second Crusade. And uh, he was called Rabbeinu Tam by all of his colleagues and by his disciples, by everyone who knew him. Uh, one should not, however, have uh, the misconception that he was a mild person, as we will see. I want to give a caveat here that no one is to deduce any halacha from the uh, instances that I'm going to quote. The halacha has been developed over many, many uh, centuries, almost a thousand years since the time of Rashi. And uh, therefore, times change, circumstances change, technology changes. So uh, there are no halachas that I'm going to say tonight. There are rather only instances of attitudes towards halacha and of uh, specific problems and cases that existed in the time of Rashi. Rashi's born in 1040, he dies in 1105. Abedin Tam is born in about 1100, he dies in about 1170, and... Uh, this uh, period of time is a very turbulent time for French Jewry. It's the time of the Crusades. The first Crusade was in 1096. The second Crusade is in the middle of the 1100s. At a time of great persecution, many, many problems. And all of this is reflected uh, in the uh, halachic attitudes and decisions of both Rashi and his grandson. Rashi had, as you all know, uh, only daughters. He had two daughters that we're aware of, Miriam and Yocheved. Uh, Yocheved was married to Rabbeinu Meir, who is the father of Rabbeinu Tam. Uh, there were three brothers. The oldest brother was Rabbeinu Shmuel ben Meir, the famous Rashbam, who completed the work of his grandfather on areas of the Talmud where Rashi's uh, commentary uh, was not completed. Uh, the Rashbam was about 20 years older than Rabbeinu Tam, and the, who was the youngest brother, and therefore we have to look at the Rashbam as being the teacher of Rabbeinu Tam, 
rather than Rashi. He was only five or six years old when Rashi died. The legend about Rabbeinu Tam, he's a legendary figure. The legend is that when Rashi died and his mother was sitting in mourning during the Shiva week and weeping, he asked her, why is she crying so much? And she said, the great light of Israel has been extinguished. And legend has it that the precocious child answered her, don't worry, Mama, I will relight it myself. Now, that is a legend, but it reflects Rabbeinu Tam. Because he had a great amount of self-assurance. Uh, and uh, he's uh, pretty much comparable to the uh, person that I spoke about in last week's lecture, the Raivad, Rabbeinu Avram ben David, who was the uh, commentator to the Rambam, in both that they uh, they really took no prisoners. They uh, they were very very firm people, and expressed themselves in that fashion. Let's talk about the personalities first, because personalities influence attitudes. Rashi is serenity itself. Uh, Rashi is not disturbed by anybody or anything. Uh, you'll look through all of the commentaries of Rashi, and you will not find that Rashi criticizes anybody. And even when he disagrees, he always quotes respectfully the other opinion, and then he says what he has to say without additional comment, so to speak, leaving it to the student to decide. Uh, Rabbeinu Tam is a volcano. Rabbeinu Tam uh, spares no one. And uh, he's a very difficult man to disagree with. And he lets you know it. And his chuvas, his responsa, uh, always are peppered with very, very strong statements. So it's interesting that he and the Raivad disagreed. So you had two volcanoes going at each other. And as you can imagine, the, the sparks flew. Rashi sees himself not as a halachic authority. He sees himself as a commentator, as a meforish, a teacher, someone to explain things. From his explanations, uh, there derives what the halacha should be. But his main task is to explain. Now, what Rashi did, uh, no one uh, has ever uh, achieved such a monumental amount of scholarship. Rashi opened the Talmud Bavli for the Jewish people. Without Rashi, the Talmud would be almost a sealed book, except for very, very high-grade scholars but it certainly could not be a book that many thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jews could study. Rashi is the one. Rashi, I've often said, is like uh, a mother holding the hand of a child uh, crossing a busy street in traffic. 
Rashi takes us by the hand and he takes us, he takes us through the Talmud in such a way that you didn't even realize there was a problem. And uh, Rashi's gift uh, is such that uh, no one has ever challenged his uh, stature as being the prime Meforesh, the prime commentator of the Talmud. Rashi's fame also rests in his commentary to the Torah. And so that uh, throughout the Jewish world, when you say the word Chumash, the next word is Rashi. And Rashi goes with it. Rabbeinu Tam remarked about his grandfather in his uh, inimitable fashion. He said, I could have also written as great a commentary to the Talmud as my grandfather did. He said, but the commentary to the Chumash, only my grandfather could have written it. And uh, so the, uh, the Jewish world held Rashi in awe and in love, absolute love for Rashi. So that that love has extended for a millennium. So a thousand years from now, just as we are a thousand years from Rashi, uh, the Jewish people love Rashi. Rabbeinu Tam is not a beloved figure. He's a figure who is held in awe. His scholarship is enormous. His leadership is firm. He's a giant. But love is a different matter. Also, they lived in different times, even though they're only separated by really a generation in between. Rashi lived at a time, most of Rashi's life is before the First Crusade. There was a period of time from about the early 900s till uh, the end of the 1000s that the Jews in France, and there were very, very few Jews, maybe 5,000 Jews, the whole thing, 300 families. The Jews in France lived on pretty decent terms with their Christian neighbors. The Jews were engaged in two main uh, businesses. One was wine, growing grapes, manufacturing wine, so that the wine industry, especially in the areas of Champagne, were in Jewish hands. And the second was uh, money lending, banking. Jews were the uh, middlemen between the nobles and the church that controlled the wealth and the people that had to borrow the money. The church couldn't lend the money directly because of uh, the church ban on usury, on taking interest, and therefore the Jew was the agent in the middle. Now, that was a dangerous thing to be, because the Jew had to collect the money as well. Nobody likes to pay debts, and the means of collection sometimes can look to be onerous and unfriendly, and uh, we'll see that reflected here in the Chuvot, in the 
commentaries and the response of both Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam is not the commentator, he is the critic. He's the analyzer. He's the one that looks at every detail and because of his vast knowledge, he says, well, how come the Talmud here says this and then the Talmud somewhere else says something else? And therefore, we have to reconcile it. And uh, he uh, does not accept simple answers. Let me give you an example that he writes about himself. Rabbeinu Tam, somebody wrote to him, and Rabbeinu Tam wrote, he wrote his opinion, then he wrote all the possible questions that could be against his opinion, then he answered all of the questions, and then he sent it away. If somebody else had any other questions, he would say, I already took care, I thought about it already. No, you're not raising any new issue to me. So he said, This is the way of the wise man. When he wants to decide a matter of halacha, He has to ask all the questions himself. In other words, when you come to a decision, you have to always consider what were the other points? What is the other, why would somebody disagree with your decision? So you have to encompass not only what you say, but all of the possible objections that others could say as well. Ulitarates. And he has to be able, you have to answer it to make your decision stand. Ah, however, Kishehu Omer Dover, what if he says something without considering what the objections are? And then Makshimolov, people write to him questions and say, but you neglected this idea, that idea, you didn't quote this piece of the Talmud. So he is forced, he's embarrassed. So he's forced to say answers which are not true, just to get rid of the question. Ain't showing low. And therefore, it's, you cannot respect such an opinion in halacha. Now, this is a uh, decided, uh, what shall I say, uh, oblique criticism to the uh, way of the Spanish Rishonim. Especially the Rambam, there's a great question whether Tosfus was aware of the Rambam or not. Tosfus does not mention the Rambam once. There's one place where it says Rabbeinu Moshe asked the question, and then the, the Achronim, they discuss whether that Rabbeinu Moshe is the Rambam or not. But Tosfus in the entire Talmud does not mention the Rambam once. Of course, the Rambam doesn't mention Tosfus either. And it it may not be that it's so much uh, a uh, ignoring as it is the method of communication. The book may not have been spread. The Rambam and the Rivet are uh, con- almost contemporaries of the Rambam. So, uh, but but it doesn't appear. The low Omra Kodem Mase. He did not before he decided. He did not consider the question. 
So he says here a rule, a psychological rule, that when a person decides something, it's hard to make him change his mind. And that, so to speak, one is committed to it, and therefore if one is committed to it, then no matter how many proofs you bring against it, he's going to try and justify what he said simply because he said it. And therefore, Rabbeinu Tam says that every person that comes to decide a question of halacha in the decision has to already consider all of the reasons why the decision may not be correct. And he has to refute them. Then he can say what the halacha is. And that's part of his uh, attitude towards those that question his matters in halacha uh, somebody writes to him and says, you know, there's this and this Gemara. He writes him back and you think, I didn't know that Gemara. He writes once, uh, What, you invented it, right? You think, I didn't know that Gemara. If you'll see my tshuva, you'll see that I take care of it there. So his uh, it, tremendous power of analysis of really dissecting every issue. And Rashi, you don't see that at all. You don't see that uh, Rashi is, uh, uh, is interested in that. Rashi does not, uh, as, as usually, Rashi does not uh, point out contradictions in the Talmud. He doesn't point out different opinions. Rashi comes to explain it straight. Therefore, Rashi in his Chuvot almost never justifies his opinion. He just says, well, this is it. And Rashi's decisions always stem from his interpretation of that phrase or case in the Talmud. Rabbeinu Tam says as follows. Here he's talking against Rashi. He said, we cannot rely that the halacha will depend completely upon the commentator. Because he is in fact saying commentary is one thing. You want to understand the Gemara, fine. But to be able to decide a matter of halacha, that's a second thing. And therefore, you cannot rely completely on the commentator. Therefore, you have to make your commentary 100% correct in order to be able to rely upon it. And here he's talking also about text. Rabbeinu Tam was a vicious foe of those who came to correct texts. Because he said many times we have a problem with the Talmud, so the easy way to do it is to say the copyist made a mistake, let's erase this word. So he wrote to somebody, he said, you took the word Osir and you made a mutter and you have problems, who told you to change it? Rashi works the texts all the time. Ochi Garcina. This is what the text should read. Now, that was a favorite thing. Tosfus also does it. Rabbeinu Tam does it rarely. 
and he writes very strongly against those that take it upon themselves to correct the written text. Now, which is the authentic written text? That is a problem. And uh, till our day, uh, there are uh, attempts to uh, somehow arrive at the correct text in the Talmud. And it's uh, not an easy matter. I think I mentioned to you once before that in the great Vilna Shas, there were 12,000 typographical errors. And they had a list, the editors had a list of all of the errors. And then in the First World War, the Ram printing press and offices were shelled by the Germans in Vilna and destroyed. And there went the 12,000 corrections. So that till today, on most of our copies of the Talmud are based upon the Ram Talmud that was published in Vilna in the 1880s. So there's a lot of, out of the 12,000, there are a few thousand still left. And how do you deal with them? So there is a problem of text. But there's no doubt that Rabbeinu Tam's crusade against changing the text has validity because of the fact that once you can play with the text, then, uh, you know, everything can be done. You can do whatever you want. So he also defines Psak, therefore... Whereas Rashi always quotes his mentors, Rashi uh, had Rabbeinu Hananel in front of him, the, the time of the Gonim, Rashi studied in the yeshiva, Rabbeinu Gershom or Agola, his Rabbeim were students of Rabbeinu Gershom. Uh, Rabbeinu Tam rarely, if ever, mentions any of them. His reference is only to the Talmud. And he said, and if you look in the Talmud correctly, and you analyze it correctly, you see what the halacha is. And uh, we don't have to deal with uh, any intermediaries. His words are, mitocho. The horoa springs forth from the Talmud itself, without any mediators in the middle, without anybody. So again, uh, we don't know whether he uh, saw the Rambam or not, but it's certainly not the Rambam's uh, method, because the Rambam said, you don't need the Gemara if you have me. And he said, we don't need you or anybody else, we only need the Gemara. Rashi, again, is a very humble person, quiet person, gentle person. Rashi is almost too sensitive. You see, Rashi in his chuvas, he almost weeps with the people of their problems. Uh, to be a judge, you can't do that. Yikov Sohor, to be a judge, you have to have a certain strength, right? Because otherwise every criminal will go free. Every, uh, every lawsuit will, uh, you know, uh, you'll see who's... So the Torah said that you can't have sympathy with the poor or with the underdog. You have to do what the law commands. So we have here an example. Rashi never answers the people that write to him. Rashi only answers to other rabbis. 
and he never gives advice to anyone that asks him what I should do. He's like, distances himself from the matter. There is one exception, there may be others, there's one that I found in the Chuvas Rashi, and that is that there was an orphan uh, that was left property, and uh, the uh, neighbors of the orphan uh, were uh, attempting to take the property away from him. And the orphan wrote directly to Rashi. And Rashi writes to him, he said, Lahazir Ish al Shalo, I am writing to you directly because I want to restore you to what is rightfully yours. Asher Horishuhu Minashomayim, that's yours because the Torah says that it's yours. So therefore, Adbo Mishpat Vataina, until you go to the Din Torah, this is what you should do. You should appoint an apotropos, a manager, a trustee on your estate, and then get a good lawyer, he says. Yamod lo boki viodea lahapech betainos. Find for yourself a good toy and a good lawyer. And that's your right to do so. And he'll do whatever heaven says. So here we have an example that Rashi goes out of his usual uh, method because he has sympathy for the orphan. Rashi, we see, has sympathy for the uh, deserted woman. Rashi, when matters of Aguna will discuss, uh, uh, Rashi goes out of his way. Rashi goes out of his way for widows. Uh, Rashi is compassionate to the end. Rabbeinu Tam is also compassionate, but Rabbeinu Tam uh, sets the law and applies the law to the case, not quite the way that Rashi would to the person. Rashi is a great favor of customs, minhogim. Rashi quotes the minhogim of his rabbeim. Rashi quotes the minhogim of the community. To him, the minhog is sacrosanct. Rabbeinatam says, listen, there's all kinds of minhogim. He said, there's minhageshtut, absolute silly minhogim. And there are minhogim that are based on reasons. So he said, if we have the reason, and we know the reason, so then the minhog is somehow valid, so we will accept it. J.M. in the A.M., we are discussing, or Rabbi Wine is lecturing us brilliantly on the topic of one of the great halachic disputes or disputors um, in Jewish history, and that's, of course, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. We will get to the conclusion of this lecture in just a moment in the 8 o'clock hour at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com on the NachumSegal Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Um, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, one 800 
W-E-I-N. You could also go to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. By the way, um, Rabbi Wine's office at the Destiny Foundation informed me that he has a brand new book that he wrote about Ne'ilah, the Ne'ilah service on Yom Kippur. It's available on their online store. If you go to RabbiWine.com, the topic or the title of the book is In the Shadow of Thy Hand, Insights on Ne'ilah of Yom Kippur. In fact, I think I saw... Give me a second here. I think I saw, yeah, oh, no, that's not it. One second. I think I saw an official ad for the book. Um, yeah, here it is. New from Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, In the shadow of thy hand, insights on Ne'ilah for Yom Kippur. Ne'ilah has always, for me, been a, this is me speaking now. <laughs> this is not a description of the book. Ne'ila for me has always been a fascinating, fascinating um, service. Uh, aside from the fact that I've had the privilege of leading it at the New Springville Jewish Center for almost four decades. But in addition to that, it's just uh, the whole concept of it being the final plea on Yom Kippur. He writes here, or I should say the, uh, the, the um, announcement for the book writes... Uh, there are times when heaven is willing to wait for someone. Before the Ne'ila service begins, after a day of fasting and prayer, self-analysis, and moments of meditation, the gates of heaven are still open. The waning sun has not yet set, and with repentance, prayer, and spirit, there is still time for us. Rabbi Wine offers us a collection of personal emotions and insights, a journey of soul, and communication with eternity. He also has Rabbi Wine's uh, insights on Musa for Rosh Hashanah, which is entitled Majesty memory, and resonance. All available at RabbiWine.com or by dialing 1-800-499-WEIN. All right. So there you have that. Uh, Also, I uh, remind you about Sunday when the the chief rabbi of the Ukraine is going to be in Teaneck, New Jersey. That'll be happening at Congregation Keter Torah, 10.15 in the morning this coming Sunday, 600 Romer Avenue in Teaneck, New Jersey. Information uh, about the event plus the opportunity to support the great work of the chief rabbis. He tries to help as many Jews as possible in the Ukraine with food and with medicine and with basic needs and necessities. Uh, Officeofchiefrabbi.org. Office of chiefrabbi.org. Uh, then I got a note. We'll get back to the to the lecture in a minute. Uh, then I got a note from my good friend Glenn Richter, who um, reminds us that on Tisha B'Av, which is a week from today, we'll have our 46th annual Mincha and Speakers program dedicated to Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. As each year, I know we can count on you to spread the word. Oh, it's my pleasure to spread the word. Since COVID, our Isaiah Wall locale has been virtual. So I guess that means the last time we David the Mincha at the Isaiah Wall was 2019. Wow. 2021, 22, 22, four years now that we haven't been back to the Isaiah Wall. And in 2019, I think I was on a flight that day, so I don't even think I was there. Anyway, at 1.45 p.m., one week from today, uh, it'll be Mincha from the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, right, this virtual uh, presentation. At 2.45, Melech Shechet, the tzaddik of Lviv, of Lviv, 
Famed Nazi hunter Ephraim Zuroff, Ethiopian jury activist Jeremy Fight, just back from Ethiopia, Rabbi Avi Weiss, CUNY faculty activist Professor Azriel Ganak. They're all going to be speaking starting at 2.45 one week from today. Now, there is a Zoom meeting ID, which I guess I'll give out as we get closer to the event. Uh, there's also a dial-in number. There's a meeting ID number. Uh, it, it is obviously, um, you know, hard, I'm sure, for people to write this down if I would, if I would recite them on the air. So um, there are two things you could do. Uh, either email me, nachum at nachumsegel.com, and I'll be more than happy to um, send you all the pertinent information. I could literally just forward this uh, flyer from Glenn Richter to you. So nachum at nachumsegel.com, just put Tish above, you know, Isaiah Wall in the, he- in the subject line, and I'll make sure to get that information to you. Or you could speak with Glenn, uh, Glenn Richter, directly, and he'll tell you what to do, 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. And again, this is the annual Tisha B'Av prayer service. Every time I think about that prayer service, I think of our dear friend, Mr. Shia Deer of blessed memory, who always accompanied us. And uh, took some amazing photos of uh, that gathering, which, as you can hear in my voice, I, I, I hope returns to be a an in-person gathering at some point in the future. Um, we are presenting the uh, lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine on uh, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. It comes from the series entitled... A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. This is a fascinating series, by the way. If you missed any of it earlier, it's well worth getting. Uh, you can be in touch with Rabbi Wine's office at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. By the way, a reminder, tomorrow, a weekly update with Malcolm Honeline, Harry Rothenberg and Rabbi Yudin about Parshas Dvarim, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the 7 o'clock hour, a big JMM tomorrow morning right here at the Nahum Siegel Network, so make sure to be tuned in. Uh, Rashi Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbi Beryl Wine, JM in the AM. Others, there's one that I found in the Chuvitz Rashi, and that is that there was an orphan uh, that was left property, and uh, the uh, neighbors of the orphan uh, were uh, attempting to take the property away from him. And the orphan wrote directly to Rashi. And Rashi writes to him, he said, ish al I am writing to you directly because I want to restore you to what is rightfully yours. Asher That's yours because the Torah says that it's yours. So therefore, ad bo mishpat v'taina, until you go to the Din Torah, this is what you should do. You should appoint an apotropos, a manager, a trustee on your estate, and then get a good lawyer, he says. Yamod Lo boki viodea lahapech betainos. Find for yourself a good toy and a good lawyer. 
וזה זכות זכות. ויעשם עד שיורעו מן השמיים, and he'll do whatever heaven says. So here we have an example that Rashi goes out of his usual uh, method because he has sympathy for the orphan. Rashi, we see, has sympathy for the uh, deserted woman. Rashi, when matters of Aguna will discuss, uh, uh, Rashi goes out of his way. Rashi goes out of his way for widows. Rashi is compassionate to the end. Rabbeinu Tam is also compassionate, but Rabbeinu Tam uh, sets the law and applies the law to the case, uh, not quite the way that Rashi would to the person. Rashi is a great favor of customs, minhogim. Rashi quotes the minhogim of his rabbeim, Rashi quotes the minhagim of the community. To him, the minhag is sacrosanct. Avinatam says, "Listen, there's all kinds of minhagim." He said, "There's minageshtut, absolute silly minhagim, and there are minhagim that are based on reasons." So he said, "If we have the reason and we know the reason." So then the minog is somehow valid, so we will accept it. Otherwise, he said, we'll discard it. And one of his famous statements is they wrote him, uh, he had the correspondence with uh, the rabbi, Benotam lived in a town called Ramarup. And then later he moved to Troyes at the end of his life. And uh, so he writes to the rabbis in Lyon, and he writes to the rabbis in Melon and in Verdun, and uh, so one of them wrote, well, I don't care what you say, this is our minhag. Rabbeinu Tam writes him back and he says, the word minhag, mem, nun, hey, gimel, those letters spell also gimel, hey, nun, mem, gehenim. <laughs> so a minhag that does not find favor in his eyes, forget it. Gone. And uh, not only that, Rashi uh, is willing to let every community have their own minog. Now, it's not like today where, uh, you know, you have this instant communication and everybody knows what's doing with everybody else. For a long period of time, really almost till our time, certainly even in Europe, in Eastern Europe, the rov in the town was the rov in the town. That's it. And you had no appeal to another rov. And you had no appeal to, uh, the, to anyone else. I mean, that was it. And the minig of your town, that was the minig. And if other t- communities had another custom that they followed, so they had another custom that they followed. That's Rashi's opinion. Rashi's opinion is that everybody has their own minig. He says many times. Everybody should keep their own minig. Rabbeinu Tam is not like that. Rabbeinu Tam says that you need one minig for everybody. He said, Val yasu kvutsos kvutsos. You cannot make the Jewish people, you know, separate sects, separate groups on everything, and everybody will do what they want to do. That's not the way to do it. And therefore he says that Provence, 
Champagne, uh, the German Rhineland. And Rabbeinu Tam was a uh, person that the Rabbonim from all over uh, the world wrote to him, the Jewish world. Uh, he had Rabbonim from Italy write to him. He has a famous uh, opening line. Uh, his, he had a, com- a compatriot of his, Rabbi Yeshaya Detrani, Tosfus Reed, a famous family of Italian Jews, Trani. Trani is from is the name from the town of Otranto, which is a town on the Italian boot, the heel of the Italian boot. So there were two Jewish communities there, Bari and Otranto. And they were uh, famous communities of Talmud Chachomim. So uh, he, wrote, he writes once, Ki mitrani teitzei Torah udvar Hashem me Otranto. So they wrote to him from Italy. They wrote to him from Greece. Uh, they wrote to him from uh, Provence, from Germany, from all over, from Belgium. So he attempted to make one minig for everybody that wrote to him. And here is where he meets up with the Rivad, Rabbi Avram ben David of Pusquares, who is in Provence. And he writes back to him and he says, what is a Frenchman doing in Provence? Like, well, who told you to give your opinion here? And he writes, he said, and it's one of the weaknesses of the French, Hatsurfasim, that they think that they're the only ones that know anything and that everybody has to do what they say. Now, in our time, I mean, uh, it's reflected in a certain way. Uh, you know, uh, does California have to listen to B'nai Brak? Because in our time, there's instant communication. But maybe the, the uh, sock in B'nai Brak does not take into account the circumstances that exist in California. I remember once I was at a Torah Masori convention many years ago. And there was a great road from Eretz Yisrael there. And there was a question and answer session. You know, the uh, educators could ask whatever question they want. So uh, one of the uh, teachers naively asked him, what does he think, is it all right for the Rebbe to play football with his students? So the man went ballistic. You play football in your yeshiva? You allowed him to play ball? You know, like it went boom, you know. Well, you know, I can understand that in his yeshiva they don't play. Or maybe they do and he doesn't know about it. But but if you're talking on the American scene, so, you know, it's uh, you're, you're really not in frequency... You're not tuned in correctly if you say that they're not going to play ball. Because that just isn't the way it is. So this question arises. Is there one custom for everybody? Or should there be all of the different customs? And uh, and let, let every individual community decide for itself. It's a... Uh, 
Rabbeinu Tam's strength, his greatness was that he was able to impose many of the customs uh, that he wished to impose and to remove many of the customs that he wished to remove uh, on French Jewry. Both Rashi and Rabbi, you know, we have, you know, we have a fantasy that everything was always wonderful until uh, our time. I read a very good book on the current economic crisis, and it said that one of the problems in the current economic crisis is that all the people who are managing it have only been in the business 30 or 40 years and therefore have never faced a crisis. He said, but if you look back in financial history, this unfortunately has happened many, many times. It happens pretty much on a regular basis every 65, 70 years. And if uh, you're not aware of that, so then boom, you know, how did it happen? You know, and what's the solution? So also uh, we think that many of the problems that face us, especially assimilation, is, you know, our problem, right? Until now, there was no assimilation, right? Everything was perfect. All the Jews were observant. Everything was perfect. And along came, you know, the Zionists and this, and they ruined it all. But uh, that's uh, very false. So let's see the time of Rashi and the time of Rabbeinu Tam. The time of Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam... There were many, many Jews. One would say, only, I, I saw the estimate, 7 to 8% of the Jewish population that converted to Christianity. Now, they converted to Christianity under pressure, most of them, the vast majority of them. But nevertheless, they converted. And so you have a double problem here that both Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam have to face. One, how to prevent it from happening. Two, if the convert intends somehow to return, how do we deal with the convert that returns, that becomes Jewish again? And uh, those uh, problems uh, uh, were enormous. So how to prevent it? The Jews tried to isolate themselves to whatever extent they could from the non-Jewish world, to build uh, this imaginary wall around them, because Jews did not live in ghettos in the time of Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. The ghetto is a later institution in the Middle Ages. But there was a uh, self-made ghetto. And uh, the Jews dealt primarily because of their small numbers, they could not have a Jewish economy. Their economy was based on daily contact with the non-Jewish world. And because of that daily contact with the non-Jewish world, they're exposed to it. And that appears throughout uh, the tshuvas of Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, how to deal with it. Now, Rabbeinu Tam, apparently, Rashi had a very low profile in the non-Jewish world. Rabbeinu Tam had a much greater profile in the non-Jewish world. Uh, there are those uh, I saw in Urbach, Sefer, 
that he says that he may have even had uh, official duties for some of the uh, noblemen in the area. And therefore, he was uh, involved completely in uh, the surrounding world. And uh, he therefore, uh, perhaps more than Rashi, was aware of its dangers. So what about Jews that come back, converts that come back? So there were those that said, listen, and we can understand that, uh, Jews who did not convert, and all of a sudden this man that converted, and now he changed his mind, you know, the pressures are lessened, and he comes back. He wants to be uh, honored in the synagogue. He wants to uh, uh, be called to the Torah. He wants, so to speak, his reputation restored. He wants to be able to sell wine. Because I mentioned before that wine is the almost the essential industry here. So people said, how can we buy wine from a Mishumid? How can we buy wine from somebody that converted? You know, a Mishumid is like a non-Jew, non-Jewish wine, non-kosher wine. Rashi says, Cholila lifrosh minyenam. God forbid that we should no longer buy their wine. Levayshon, and to embarrass them. Velogozru el almago goy, velol almago poshe Yisrael. Chazali said only asserted, only prohibited the wine of non-Jews, but not the wine of Jews that are sinners. Rashi says, Cholila levayshon. How can we embarrass them? So that's a different sensitivity. Rashi Paskins, what about a Kohen? Kohen converted. He changed his mind. He came back to Shul. He wants to Duchen. He wants to go to the Omid to Duchen. They walked out on him in Shul. Rashi said, what are you talking about? He's allowed to Duchen. Kosher Leduchen. He said, he, we can't judge people that way. So that's Rashi's attitude. You have the famous case that Rashi himself, the Gabbai in Shul, wouldn't call up the returning Jew. And Rashi took it upon himself. He went up and he became the Gabbai and called him up for the honor. Abinatam has a different attitude. He's... <laughs> He says, when, he says, converting in my time to becoming a non-Jew, your punishment is that you're never accepted as being a non-Jew in the non-Jewish society. He says, we don't need a punishment from the Jews to go and punish them. Here's what he said. All of Jews that convert... The Goyim call them by their Jewish name. Mechani Mosom Goyim Lignai. The Goyim insult them by calling them by the Jewish name. Yehuda, Yehuda, Avram, Avron, Asher, Asherah, Menachem, Malachim. They don't even let them take a good non-Jewish name. Mekama Mishumodim Girshu Nishoseim. So many times... What you had is that the man converted and he left the wife. 
So the wife is an aguna. So Rabbeinu Tam, through his influence, has the, uh, the, the duke, the authorities, force the mishumad, force the convert to give a divorce to his wife. So that she will no longer, because she's still married to him under Jewish law. So what name do you write in the get? He said, We write the Jewish name, because that's his name. Even the Goyim call him by that name. Rabbi Tom has the famous case in the Gomorrah and Ksubis, that there was a Jewish woman that uh, fell in love with a non-Jew, and she converted and married him. And then uh, they both decided that they're going to become Jewish. He became a ger, he became a convert to Judaism, and she came back. So Rabbeinu Tam uh, said that they can marry and live together. And what happened before is, you know, doesn't count. And that's one of his famous psukim. Now There's an attitude here. The attitude is somehow to save what we can save, not to drive people out. Under terrible, terrible circumstances. Rabbeinu Tam himself was almost killed in the Second Crusade. On the second day of Shavuos, the Crusaders came to his community they dragged him out in the field, and they were going to kill him. And he saw riding by a certain officer, uh, and he uh, told the officer, uh, he, he writes, I, I bribed him by, uh, by offering him a horse. And he went to the uh, gang that held him, and he said, uh, release him uh, because tomorrow he's going to convert. If he doesn't convert, I will kill him. So they released him, and the officer let him go because he took the horse. So uh, Rabbeinu Tam composed a poem about uh, how he was saved uh, by that uh, uh, event. So there's uh, in the halacha, there are different attitudes towards non-Jews, depending, again, to a certain extent upon their experiences and upon the time and the circumstances. Rashi is asked, for instance, uh, regarding uh, Ampurim, uh, not only uh, poor Jews came for Matonot Levionim, but non-Jews also came. So should you give to the non-Jews? So Rashi says, well, we have to give to them because of Ava, because of the fact that they will hate us. But he said, if one can, uh, one should not diminish the amounts of money that one gives to the Jewish poor uh, because of the fact that one is giving to the non-Jewish poor. Rashi was very machmir. He took a very strict opinion regarding the milk of non-Jews. He had a case that the Jewish girl that was supposed to watch the milking, she went away and then she came back. He said, we can't take the milk because he said they purposely mix in other things with the milk and therefore uh, the, the milk from non-Jewish uh, 
milking is not permitted at all. However, when it came to non-Jewish wine, uh, he, uh, meaning non-Jews that dealt with wine, he looked for heterim, as we'll see. I imagine because that was the Jewish business, and you know, if a non-Jew just walked over to the barrel and touched it, so then the whole uh, the whole barrel uh, was wasted. Rashi also has a famous psak that in one oven uh, that was uh, in one part of the oven, uh, a dairy uh, food was being cooked, and the other part of the same oven, a meat part was being cooked. Rashi says it's permissible because Reicholav Milsahi, the steam, the smell, that's not the problem. As long as no transference of material, so to speak. Uh, so uh, we saw that Rashi uh, Rashi also says Lo We don't suspect the Christians that they use wine. Because he said in their services they don't offer wine at all. There's just the wine in the mass, but there's no avoda with it. They are not, he said, our, uh, our Christians are not fanatics. Tosfus will say later, Rabbeinu Tam will say later, that it's not a problem giving the money to the priest because he said he won't use it for the church, he'll pocket it. Zatosus and Avodazor. That they take it for themselves. So they had like a cynical attitude towards it. He said in, in pagan worship, part of the worship was that they took the wine and they stirred it and with their own fingers, etc., to offer it. He said that doesn't happen here. They don't do that. So and he says, There are evil non-Jews that purposely want to destroy Jewish wine. That's only Bifnei Yisrael Eimosim. They only do it when the Jew is looking. Because then they want to stick it to you. If you didn't see him do it, You don't have to have fear that somehow he did it. Now, part of the reason was that they had non-Jewish employees that worked in their wineries, that worked to help them. Again, you're talking about a relatively small Jewish population. So, like, if, if in the town there were 50 Jews and there was a big wine business, you had to have non-Jews working, too, that would have access to the wine. And so Rashi comes to uh, somehow alleviate the problem. He said, we don't have to suspect them that they would uh, do it. And if they do it, they do it in front of us. They do it purposely to show. Abenu Tam, who had uh, far harsher experiences with the non-Jewish world, has a much less tolerant attitude. He says, Stam akum anosu. 
the regular goy is someone that is a robber, an assaulter, is a criminal. Stam nochri shakronu. Non-Jews, he said, are liars. And then he says a strong thing. Shafilu meya edim yichpor goy v'yishba v'yitol. Even if you have a hundred witnesses, the non-Jew will say, I'll take an oath that I'm right, and with taking the oath, he will win, even though he's lying from the beginning to the end. So he uh, therefore feels that the non-Jewish world is capable of everything. He's not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, Rashi has a case where uh, somebody owed money to Rashi, and he denied it. So Rashi said, I'm going to take you to the church and make you swear in the church that you don't owe the money. So they all asked, how could Rashi do that? Because he's going to swear in the name of uh, the non-Jewish God. And the Gemara says in Avodah Zorah that it's not allowed. The Gemara says that a Jew and a non-Jew shouldn't even be partners because we're afraid that it'll come to a dispute, and they, because of the dispute, the non-Jew will come to take an oath, and the oath will be in the name of a pagan god, and the Jew will be responsible for bringing him to that situation. So Rashi says, I didn't mean that he should swear, I only meant to frighten him. I meant to bring him to the door of the church, and, I, and that would be enough, that he would admit it. But if he was willing to go through with it, I certainly would not have forced him to go through with it. Ravina Tom says that it's useless to make them go through with it because he said that they will not swear correctly. Now, the censor took out all of this, as you can imagine. But it's been restored in our time, and we have original manuscripts that existed in uh, the Bodleian Library and in Oxford and also in uh, the Vatican Library and in other libraries and the library in Paris that have the original text. And in our time, Jews somehow feel free to print it the way it is. His attitude to uh, Jews who are converts is different than Rashi. Rashi said that they're still Jews. He says, Mumer umumeris, a convert, male or female. Hareze goi gomur lecholdvorov. Is considered to be a non-Jew in every respect, whatever the law is. And we are not even obligated, lachayoso, to help them in their time of need. So, a different attitude. Uh, someone asked him about placing, it's interesting, you know, the Shaila is a thousand years old, but it's all common. Someone asked him about placing their children in amongst Christians to be saved in the crusade. And he said not to do it. He said, first of all, the Christians themselves will kill them. You can't trust them. And he said, in the best scenario, they'll convert them 
and make them non-Jews. So that's a very uh, tough opinion to take upon yourself. But again, he's speaking of his, uh, I mean, from his personal experience, from his personal pain, from being saved himself. Rabbi Natama, however, faces a problem. Uh, the Mishnah in Avodah Zorah says that on the days of the non-Jewish holidays, you're not allowed to do business with the, Jew, with the non-Jewish population. Well, on the non-Jewish holidays, that's when the Jews did the most business. They were the only ones that were in business. And especially the wine business. So he mentions there specifically Nittel, which is Christmas, and Pischa, which is uh, Easter, the Good Friday, etc. So he said, well, on those days, it's a, really, it's, a, it's quoted in Tosfus in Navodah Zorah, that on those days you're not allowed to do business to sell them things that they would actually use in the church service. But to sell them things for their own personal use, he said there's no yisr at all. There's no uh, no prohibition whatsoever. And there are many that disagree with that opinion, but that was his opinion. Uh, and uh, he, uh, because of his greatness, uh, his opinion was followed. So we see here uh, someone... Uh, wrote to him, there are two stories to conclude this, someone told, uh, wrote to him and said, you know, I uh, disagree with an opinion of your grandfather of Rashi. So he wrote him back and he said, who are you to disagree with Rashi? Who gave you permission to disagree with Rashi? So the rabbi wrote him back and he said, there's nobody disagrees with Rashi more than you do. So he wrote him back and he said, listen, he's my grandfather, not your grandfather. I can disagree with him. He's my Zayden, not yours. You know, you stay out of this. Then there's a modern story. It may it's apocryphal, but it uh, sums up the influence of Ravina Tom till today. Is that a man calls up uh, Laniato Hospital, uh, Motsoi Shabbat, about 35 minutes after Shkia. And uh, Laniato Hospital in, in, uh, in Kiryat Sanz in Nathania, Kloisenberger Rebbe's hospital that he built. So there's a Druze that works the switchboard on Shabbat. So he calls up and the Druze answers the phone. And the man says, I want to be connected to room, I don't know, 301 or something. So the Druze says, I'm sorry, I cannot do anything until the rabbi comes and says that it's Shabbat is over. So the man says, what rabbi? He says, I don't know, but they call him Rabbeinu Tam. <laughs> so uh, Rabbeinu Tam still lives, uh, as does Rashi. And uh, they march uh, hand in hand. And uh, he fulfilled the legend that where Rashi's light was extinguished, he relit it. He lit it again. And uh, from uh, 
Rabbeinu Tam is the basis for our Tosafos, Rabbeinu Tam and his brother, the Rajman. And uh, in the Jewish world, since their time, you want to study the Talmud, it's Rashi on one side of the page, one column, but more in the middle column, and in the other column, it are the Tosfos, and they have marched together hand in hand through Jewish history now for well over 900 years. This concludes. JM in the AM with Riberal Wine. What a brilliant lecture on Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. Just phenomenal. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's Thursday, JM in the AM on this 20th of July, day number two in the month of Menachemav. We're one week away from Tishabov. Uh, tomorrow here, Friday at JM in the AM, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents. My father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the 7 o'clock hour, Rabbi uh, Yudin and uh, Harry Rothenberg, both on the uh, subject of Parsha's Devarim, all tomorrow morning right here at JM and the AM. Make sure to be tuned in. Uh, full schedule today at 9 o'clock. It'll be Charlie Harari with Unlocking Greatness. His perspective about the fast of Tishabov is coming up at 9 o'clock, just... Uh, 15 minutes from now, Jew in the City speaks at 10 a.m. Allison will speak to Rabbi Robin Frisch about how her family navigates their unique situation. Rabbis raising a son, studying to be an Orthodox rabbi. And uh, those of you who are curious what I mean by that, tune in and you will hear this fascinating story. Um, Miriam L. Wallach with uh, Naftali Engel, the founder of the Rebbe's Choice. Uh, that'll be encored at 10.30 this morning on That's Life. Thursday, live lunch with Yossi Zweig. Tani talks Parsha tonight, starting at 10 p.m. Uh, with Tani Gutterman. And that is your Thursday schedule here at the Nahum Siegel Network. As we always say, especially on Thursday, no need to touch that dial. Just keep it here all day long. Simple as that. A um, couple of things. First of all, I did make uh, mention earlier of the fact that we will be at Hask, mentioned this also with uh, Reb Judah, we'll be at Hask on Sunday, the 30th of July for Hask Experience Day. It's a week from Sunday, the Sunday of Shabbos Nachamu weekend. And that broadcast that we're going to be doing, or recording, I should say, at Hask is going to be um, uh, featured on uh, Monday morning, the 31st of July. So Monday morning, the 31st of July, that is when we will be uh, airing our special visit to Camp Hask. It'll really be a continuation of um, a time for Pillars, the Pillar Society, and Hask Experience Day, uh, which is all going to be happening the day before on the 30th of July, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody up there. Uh, also, I remind you, this coming Sunday, the Chief Rabbi of the Ukraine, Rabbi Moshe Azman, this Sunday at 10.15, a congregation kept their Torah with a full report regarding what's going on in the Ukraine, vis-a-vis um, -vis the Jewish community of the Ukraine and how he is trying his hardest to uh, get food and supplies and medicine to those in need in the Ukraine. Um, information and to donate to his uh, fund to help him do his work, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Again, officeofchiefrabbi.org. Org. We mentioned earlier that this year, again, for the fourth year in a row, the Mincha service of the Isaiah Wall on Tishabov a week from today is going to be a virtual Mincha with Mincha from the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale at 145 and then many, many speakers 
Mailech Shechet, the Tzaddik of Lviv. Famed Nazi hunter Ephraim Zuroff. Ethiopian jury activist Jeremy Fight, who's just back from Ethiopia. Or by Avi Weiss. CUNY faculty activist Professor Azriel Ginak. They'll all be speaking starting at 2.45 one week from today on Thursday. If you want the Zoom ID... The passcode, meeting ID, etc. Just email me, nachum at nachumsegel.com, and we'll get that to you. You could also call Glenn Richter for more information and to get all the info at 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. All right, so that's where we stand at the moment with um, – with, uh, Items from our community calendar, different things that are going on in the community. We are going to go back to Rabbi Wine. Uh, This is a lecture that I'm assuming we will complete early tomorrow morning. Actually, yeah, we'll probably play it in its entirety early tomorrow morning since there's uh, just a few minutes left to JMM this morning. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine, in this brilliant uh, series entitled A Difference of Opinion, Halachic Disputes in Jewish History, he has one on Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah. Uh, Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah, um, and that is coming up next. That'll be Roy Wine's topic. Uh, I remind you, Roy Wine's lecture is available, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine, JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself with the uh, two great figures uh, that form the basic uh, book of uh, halacha in Jewish history, which is the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, we are speaking about uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo and about Rabbi Moshe Iserlish. Yosef Karo is known as the Beis Yosef. He's known also as the Machaber, the author, meaning the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And uh, Ramosha Yisraelish is known as the Ramah, which are the uh, first letters of Rabbi Moshe Yisraelish. Now, Halacha always has to deal with outside circumstances. It never is formed in a vacuum. It's uh, as much as we would like to think that it's an ivory tower, uh, purely theoretical, uh, uninfluenced by people and events, uh, the aloha, because it is living and because it is relevant and pertinent to every generation, takes into account events uh, that are experienced by those who form it. Rabbi Yosef Caro is from the exiles of Spain. He was exiled from Spain in 1492 with his family. He wanders over the Mediterranean to the Balkans and then to Greece. Finally, he settles in Turkey. And eventually, he comes to the land of Israel, to the city of Tzvat. Another exile from Spain was his main teacher and mentor, Abiyakov Beirav, who also ends up in, in uh, the land of Israel. Now, the trauma of the exile of the Jews from Spain 
was in its time equal, though we cannot compare it in terms of numbers, but it was equal to the trauma that the previous generation suffered in its experiences in World War II. Uh, half the Jews in Spain converted to Christianity. Uh, the largest mass conversion in Jewish history. The other half left with nothing. It's estimated that almost 50,000 of them died on the roads, in the ships, going out of Spain. Now you have to understand that the Jews in Spain, they were there 800 years. And they were wealthy, and they were part of Spanish society. Uh, they were the grandees. They served in the courts of the kings, both under Muslim and Christian rule. To the end, the treasurer of uh, the uh, emperors, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, was Don Isaac of Barbanel. Uh, the man that financed the voyage of Christopher Columbus was Avram Senor, who converted because he couldn't give up his money. So you're talking about a tremendous trauma. Jews always felt that when disasters strike, it's a prelude to the Messianic era. It's the Chevle Moshiach, the pains of the Messianic era. And since from the time of the destruction of the Second Temple till 1492, there never was such a disaster in Jewish life. So there naturally arose within the confines of the Jewish heart, the expectation that something great was going to happen that would somehow redress the balance scale, that would make it worth it, so to speak, if we can use those types of words regarding the human suffering that's involved. Rabbi Yaakov Rav, together with other great Sephardic rabbis, came to the land of Israel in the expectation that this was the beginning of the Messianic era, and they wanted to be in the land of Israel because the Messiah would redeem the Jews and bring them all home. Now, according to an opinion that the Rambam expressed almost uh, 300 years earlier, a prelude to the Messianic era is the establishment of the uh, Torah's judicial system. And that's really the order that we have in the Amidah and the uh, blessings that we recite every day. The first is Ashiva Shoftena Kavarishona, and then it's Tkavishofer Godol, and then it's Semach Dovid, Menei Yerushalayim, then it's Echazeno Einenu, Bishufcha Letzion Barachamim. But first is Ashiva Shoftena Kavarishona, restore for us our tradition of justice and of judges. The Sanhedrin had expired in about 450 of the Common Era, 
So this is a thousand, a thousand fifty years after the end of the Sanhedrin. But the Rambam had left the loophole because the question is, how can the Sanhedrin be renewed? In order for the Sanhedrin, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to have ordination, smicha, from another member of the Sanhedrin. In other words, one generation ordained the next. If for a thousand, over a thousand years there was no member of the Sanhedrin, and we can say now for over two thousand years, so then how, how is it ever going to get started again? So Jews have an answer. Mashiach. We leave a lot of things to him. I think it's part of his hesitancy in coming. Is because we have relegated so much to him. So we don't have to do anything. You know, we're going to sit and wait. If Yaakov Rav had a revolutionary idea, he was going to take the formula that the Rambam mentioned, the Rambam's formula is as follows, that if there is a conclave of the Talmidei Chachomim, of the scholars of Israel, who live in the land of Israel, those who live outside the land of Israel, no matter how great they are in Torah, are excluded, according to the Rambam. They have to live in the land of Israel. If they have such a gathering and they collectively feel that there is amongst them a person that is worthy of this ordination, they collectively can give him this ordination and revive the smicha. And then this person, since he now has the smicha, he can give it to others as well. And Rabbi Yaakov Erav called such a conference... And uh, many, many tens of rabbis attended. And they all agreed that Rabbi Yaakov Rav is the one to receive the smicha. And Rabbi Yaakov Rav in turn gave smicha to 20, 30 other great rabbonim. One of whom was Rabbi Yosef Kara. But the majority of the Jewish world did not accept it. That solution did not agree that it had the power of the Sanhedrin. And it became a great dispute, uh, a dispute amongst rabbis, but the dispute spilled over into the Jewish street as well. And because of it, therefore, uh, that generation died without granting smicha to anyone else. So that in our time now, we're left uh, back at square one. And that's why all of the uh, attempts in our time to constitute Sanhedrins or to uh, uh, declare that such a thing is possible is met by very, very strong rabbinic opposition based on this uh, difficult experience. So, Yosef Karo is an enormous scholar in a time of... Uh, Rabbi Barrel Wine on the topic exactly. of the uh, halachic dispute, Rav Yosef Karo and the Ramah. We will start our Friday jam and aim with this lecture tomorrow morning as uh, Rabbi Wine continues this brilliant series. Just an absolutely 
brilliant series. Israel and our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are we are with you as your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored digital radio around the world web at Siegel.com and the Nachumsegel Network, and of course, any beloved NSN app. Wraps up a great Thursday here at JMNAM. Charlie Harari is next. Jew in the City. Allison Joseph's at 10, 10.30 for Mary Mel Wallach, and that's life. 11 o'clock, Yossi's Wag live with a live lunch. Kalakavod Yossi. Tonight, Tani Talks Parsha with Tani Gutterman at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, all on the Nahum Siegel Network. Have a fabulous Thursday. Until tomorrow, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.